0: I have no intention of starting to watch Discovery, but I'm probably just I'm probably just gonna be like, you know, what are the timestamps for Tig's appearances in each episode, and I'll just watch those scenes. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is episode 38. Anita's away on a top secret mission, but don't worry, I'm wearing a 3D printed mask of her face as I sit here in the host chair. Yes, it's me, Carolyn Pettit, and I'm joined by my fellow international super spy, Ebony Astor. Hey, Ebony. Carolyn,
1: so happy to be here saving the world with you. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So this is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love, or alternatively, we're the feminist killjoys coming for your medias, depending on your perspective. It's morally gray, you know, it's morally gray, the operations of feminist frequency. (laughs) We like to cause the problems and then solve the problems, just like they do in *Vision Impossible. Exactly. Uh, In today's show, we're going to perform our own stunts as we get into the latest installment of you guessed it, the Mission Impossible franchise, Mission Impossible Fallout. As always, we'll finish the show by uh, both sharing a little something in What's Your Freakout? And just like last week, we're going to let one of you grab the mic and share one of your freakouts. We can't wait. Mm-hmm. Exclusively for our fantastic backers, we've got a bonus segment with... Things and words in it. So many things and so many words. If you want access to our bonus segment and other fun perks, join our podcast community at d.rip slash femfreak. Now, on with the show. Hey there, Ebony. Hey, Uh, Carol. How was your mission to go see Mission Impossible this weekend? Did you have trouble pulling off that that mission? Uh, Well, at times it did seem
1: like I was engaging in double and triple crosses with myself mm. uh, as I've made my way to the theater. But no, as always, like Ethan Hunt, I was successful and I was a badass doing it. I don't think our listeners have any idea how excited I am for today's show. So just yeah. as a quick peek behind the curtains... Uh, all of us, Carol, Anita, and I, you know, have sort of equal say in the kind of stuff that we're going to talk about uh, week on week until we make suggestions. Sometimes they're upvoted, sometimes they're downvoted, whatever. I had been quietly slipping like Mission Impossible onto the calendar for the past mm. couple of months. And Anita <laughs> conveniently was like, yeah, y'all can do it the week I'm away. But these movies yeah. are my everything
0: oh no i i i a big fan of this franchise. i mean i i mean I have complicated feelings about it, which we'll get into but i yes. this was i was not gonna let this film go uh un, un undiscussed and yeah anita's not you know she hasn't seen like the last few mission impossible she's not really up to speed on the franchise and so yeah, I think it works out well that uh you know the timing you know uh that that you and I can kind of dig in this together it's uh it's almost like it's it's a little you know it's a more uh timely more more uh, contemporary episode of of our uh, other podcast Cinema Ball in which you and I get into two deep discussions of movies every week but you know the, the the big difference being this time on this show we're talking about the the mainstream blockbuster of the moment whereas on Cinema Ball we talk about you know indie movies from the early 90s that uh, absolutely <laughs> nobody is talking about right now
1: <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I encourage people to check out Cinema Ball, which comes out every Friday. This is essentially like Cinema Ball is on a field trip to the Feminist Frequency Studios. yeah. Uh, and uh, But if you like that kind of, you know, movie discussion by people who actually just really love digging into film, you should check it out. And now... Let's move past the plug.
0: (laughs) All right. Before we get into Mission Impossible, let's check in with the pop culture news. Really, one story in my mind, and I think yours looms above all others in the realm of pop culture these past uh, few days. You know, soon, Ebony, we're all going to be once again drinking Earl Grey hot from our replicators when... Jean Luc Picard returns to the Star Trek universe. Um, How do you, you know, you're, you're, let's put our cards on the table. I, uh, I, I I enjoyed Next Generation a lot. I I have a lot of fondness for Picard as a character, but you're more steeped in, uh, Star Trek and more up to date, you know, with Discovery, which we also have a podcast about, than I am. You know, how do you feel about this news, Uh, Picard returning to Star Trek as it is right now?
1: I am. I'm so excited. I think one of the things that has been kind of frustrating for some people, not everybody, certainly, but some people um, like hardcore Star Trek fans about Discovery is the way in which it is a wildly different take on the Star Trek franchise. And one of the things that people point to is the profoundly militaristic, um, you know, kind of undercurrent. In fact, it's not even an undercurrent, it's an overcurrent of Star Trek Discovery. And, you know, what's been lacking for some people as (laughs) boogle house banana soup entertaining as Discovery was week on week was a sense that, like, there were capable, intelligent thoughtful people with their hands on the helm you know uh, this you may recognize the echoes to our current geopolitical reality but just the idea that hey maybe people whose you know mission isn't shoot first ask questions later and so i love the idea that we're going to get Picard i actually haven't done much reading about how they're going to bring him back if such uh, information exists out there because i'm still so salty that i didn't get to go to the star trek um, convention in Las Vegas this past weekend. I was supposed to go. I had plans to go. Unfortunately, life got in the way, mm. and so like the big angry toddler that I am, I have kind of refused to engage with Star Trek news this week um, in a deep way. Just I don't know, despite myself, I sure. guess. Sure. So yeah. I haven't I haven't dug into it, but I, on the on its face, just the news itself, I'm so excited. And also, Picard woke Bay. Like I love him. You know. Oh, I mean, like Pet- he's so he- great.
0: Yeah, I mean Patrick Stewart is great. Like, genuinely, a, a, a man who uses his position and his privilege to to raise awareness about uh, you know important issues. Domest- he's big about domestic violence. He's mm-hmm. he re- I think really uh, stands with with women on uh, on a lot of issues. Um, and and I have to say, when I first heard about this, I I was wary. My my initial reaction was, oh boy, I don't know if I want the people who are. Uh, making creative decisions about Star Trek today, um, getting their hands on Picard because are we going to get a, is it going to somehow diminish Picard's legacy as a character? Are they going to use him in ways that, that, um, you know, I, uh, a friend of mine tweeted something like, uh, you know, I'll let it be, be, let it be just mr rogers in space and and while of like picard has steel in his veins and he will fight when necessary but i did understand i think sort of what my friend was getting at uh, in terms of like picard's kind of fundamental decency and right. and like I-, I think that we need models of that on television now perhaps you know more than we have in a long time. And so I hope that that, that aspect of Picard uh, yeah, is not um, erased, but rather, you know, flourishes in in whatever form the new series takes. And the one thing also that kind of uh, melted the ice, the layer of ice around my heart about this news was a video of uh, of Sir Patrick making the announcement in Las Vegas. And the crowd's jubilant reaction yeah. um clearly moving him like deeply right he was mm-hmm. he was he was moved and and i just can't stay uh cynical or wary about the news after that i'm just like oh oh okay yes i yeah. want this i just i just hope they do right by him stewart himself did uh tweet i think or uh, go on record in a statement somewhere i don't have it in front of me unfortunately but saying something along the lines of um you know he 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 may not be exactly the same picard that you remember he will be changed by his experiences um and that's fine like um it's just a matter of, of what they do with that like I, right. I I wouldn't mind a Picard who's in some ways maybe more suspicious of Starfleet's uh, mm-hmm. intentions or methods things like that um, but uh, but yeah I just want Picard to, to remain the kind of figure of of, of decency and uh, the that that we that we all know and love. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think you know. Uh, final thoughts on that is that I am really interested in how exactly he's going to be uh, returned, because of course, Star Trek: Discovery is a you know. It, early shot of Starfleet and, you know, the Picard we know from the, the Starfleet or Star Trek universe we know is separated from that time period by hundreds of years. And so I'm wondering what sort of creative ways they're going to use. So hopefully this will bring us, you know, some really awesome stories and uh, the coming season, which Anita and I will unpack weekly. Anita, Fretfully so uh, on the Star Trek Discovery recap freecast. So you know, subscribe to that shit so you know when it returns because it's gonna be boogle House.
0: The uh, I'm so excited about the fact that Tignataro is going to be on Discovery when it returns. I presume in a in a su- just small supporting role for yeah. comic relief from time to time. I have no intention of starting to watch Discovery, <laughs> but I'm probably just I'm probably just gonna be like. Yeah, uh, ask the two of you to tell me where you know what are the timestamps stamps for tig's exactly. appearances in each episode and i'll just watch those scenes
1: so basically you'll watch uh, star trek discovery the way that i watch orange is the new black which is i wait to see which key scenes people are talking about on social media and right. i'll skim to those points but you're not getting me to watch that show again nope
0: <laughs> yeah um Okay, let's dive into the the main event, the big the reason for the, the season, big mission here. <laughs> so, uh, all right, it's been uh, you know two years since the last uh, Mission Impossible uh, film, which was Rogue Nation. Um, interestingly, Fallout is the first I think Mission Impossible film um, to really serve as like a direct sequel to its predecessor in the sense yeah. that I that. Previously, uh, each film in the series has been a self-contained story for the most part of, you know, there's obviously a few relationships and details that are that are touched on from time to time. Um, But uh, but this is really the first time where I where if I knew somebody was going to see this film. I might say, hey, you know, you might want to watch Rogue Nation before you go see uh, before you go see Fallout. I didn't I was actually surprised to find in the early moments of this film that it was such a direct sequel from the yeah. events of the predecessor. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, Ebony, um, take it away. Start us off here.
1: I will I will take it away and I will give it back to you, the people, as we come together to lift hands in praise that the summer season has finally brought us a new Mission Impossible movie. So yeah, as Carol says, it's been two years uh, since the action of the last film, uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And in this film, Tom Cruise playing, you know, super spy Ethan Hunt uh, is tasked, you know, with recovering some nuclear-grade plutonium before the crew um, of his last antagonist, uh, played by Sean Harris, can set off some bombs. They have this... ludicrous pseudo anarchist mission that we're gonna get into in the, in the body of our discussion. Um, but that's, that's kind of the, the, um, the rationale for why these bombs are gonna be set off, which, you know, there's a way in which, like, every Mission Impossible movie is kind of like a bottle episode of TV. They are self-contained. But this film, Fallout, in its very title, tells you that it's going to be linked thematically and narratively to the one that preceded it, um, which was, I think, um, very interestingly done. And I think, you know, I... I, I Super enjoyed this movie, um, but I think could only have been done because the uh, writer and director of the last film, Rogue Nation, also wrote and directed uh, this one. Um, you know, so like each each film in the Mission Impossible universe has previously been directed by a different director. Um, and when you think about the names here, so it's like Brian De Palma, John Woo, J.J. Abrams, Brad Bird. Like these are directors who... Like Their stylistic touches are so well-known at this point that the ways in which each Mission Impossible film, although they're linked through the character of Ethan Hunt and occasionally through different characters like his supporting crew, nevertheless, each movie is so radically different. And yet somehow there's a red through line... um, (laughs) <laughs> that allows us to just sort of like go along for the ride, no matter yeah. who's in charge,
0: right? I mean, I, I think that that's actually one of the mo- one of the things that makes the series now uh, so cinematically significant and interesting is the way that we can see the stylistic hallmarks of of uh, so many uh, uh, landmark or you know important directors in their films. I mean, um, certainly Brian De Palma's. Original film now it, it feels almost like a film from a different franchise because it's less about big physical uh, action. It's less about Ethan Hunt as like a like a physical figure which is what he became this kind of man of physical action and more about kind of spy intrigue um, right. and then of course from that to John Woo who's like uh, so over the top in in his martial arts stylings and then the JJ J. Abrams ep- uh I almost said episode because it does feel very much like an episode of alias uh only with characters from mission impossible swapped in for sydney bristow and the crew from alias so yeah can i
1: ask you caro so you've seen all the films Mm -hmm. i've seen all the films what's your ranking uh in terms of which one you liked most just off the cuff without thinking about it which one did you enjoy most how would you rank them
0: oh god that's hard um i would probably give, give me the top two then Top two are probably going to be four and one for me.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Break that down for me.
0: So Brad Bird, um, you know, after like the J.J. Abrams uh, and John Woo uh, uh, installments, I sort of felt like the series was flagging. I felt like it was becoming kind of... I felt like the J.J. Abrams uh, episode, again, was not... um, that strong, and so I, I was worried really about the longevity of the franchise. And Brad Bird, who's known for his work with Pixar, his work on the the Incredibles and you know stuff, brought to four such a a, a an energetic uh, action sensibility that um, I, I really felt like that film just was so successful at revitalizing the franchise. Um, the first one for me stands out because it feels rooted in in the kind of spy stuff that that I really get kind of excited about you know yeah. clandestine meetings double crosses you know the right. the the streets of of like prague right which just looks so beautiful in that film um it just is steeped in that kind of international spy intrigue whereas the later films have those elements but they are they are just background for what are really like just really briskly paced action films. Um, in the first Mission Impossible, like that stuff is actually um, it's it's the substance of the film in a sense, as opposed to being like the excuse for the film.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I have similar feelings to you. I um, although many people point to Philip Seymour Hoffman as being like kind of the er. Ur- antagonist for the Mission Impossible franchise. I, I It's not that I was left dissatisfied by 3. It's just it didn't tickle my Mission Impossible bone. And I did think at this point, like, you know what, you guys, you could stop making these at this point and And I won't care. I, I will not miss these at all. Um, particularly after 2, which okay, you know I got that Dandy Newton thing where she just, she just makes me itch. Like, I don't know what it is about her. No matter how competent she is as an actor whatever other people are seeing I don't see it so (laughs) you can talk about her chemistry with Tom Cruise all you want I just was unable to enjoy that film because she was in it you know um but yeah so after three I was like okay yeah we can kiss this goodbye but then four came back and it was like that kid who left you know like after your sophomore year and was kind of whatever did a glow up over the summer and then came back so strong. I
0: mean, exactly. That's, that was my feeling about four as well as like, Oh shit. Wow. Mission impossible is back. Like this is, this is awesome.
1: Yeah. Like Tom Cruise just said, like, there's no way uh, this is going to die. Like I'm, I'm punching up at at this point. Um, I have to say five rogue nation is still my favorite. Um, okay. having having now seen this one. And it's partially to do with uh, Sean Harris as the primary antagonist. It's partially to do with Rebecca Ferguson, who also comes into uh, this film, uh, who plays a, a key role. Um, but I just think it was so smartly written. And for me, uh, it, it manages to situate itself within the genre of like kind of ludi- ludicrous spy craft while also being... I think a bit more intelligent about what the sort of consequences, like global consequences are um, for yeah. spycraft, right? Upon the, the men and women who engage in it, which I found so disturbing or rather not disturbing, but disappointing about this one. As much as I loved it, I just thought, do you, what? There, There's no way in which any of this makes sense. And you could have, crafted something um, that and which you, you didn't have to deal with kind of like these real world issues. It could have just been, you know, uh, kids playing in the backyard with their, their spy ideas, like, and then he did this, and then he did this, and it would have been fine. But the attempt to kind of reckon with real world issues in this film just felt flat for me.
0: Well, I, I'll i say, you know, I there were some philosophical questions that this film at least brushed up against That I appreciated. Um, And I I feel like they, in some way, uh, illuminate Ethan Hunt's character a bit and develop who he is so that he's not, he, he develops a bit beyond being just the incredibly determined man of action who does whatever needs to be done. So the whole crisis in this film is, of course, that these terrorists have they they have this plutonium which with with which they can create nuclear bombs and this isn't a spoiler in my mind this is in the trailer uh, f- you know all the promotion for the film where you see sort of Angela Bassett's character kind of scolding Ethan Hunt's character uh saying um you know he says well if i'd if i'd prevented them from getting the plutonium my team would be dead and Angela Bassett says yes they would that's the yeah. job but Ethan Hunt um Ethan Hunt is sort of in this film a bit like a walking version of the trolley problem, right? right? And the characters other characters comment on this repeatedly throughout the film, his inability to let say one person die um so so that to to prevent the chance of millions of others dying, right? Like he saves one of his team members early on in the film and that leads to uh that leads to the crisis basically that then the whole rest of the film is is about resolving um i like that it that that moral territory is there at all you know i am um, yeah no film, I, 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 I totally that. get that
1: but why it seemed um so you know duplicitous um mm-hmm. to me it was because that that issue was raised and yet it was never fully reckoned with in a way that I thought showed like sort of sustained thoughtfulness. So one of the questions I had about this film is where are the Brown people? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Amy framed Nick for her own murder. We, there's a significant section of the action towards the end of the film. Oh, spoiler alert, y'all. Um, that happens in Indian Kashmir, right? And yet we never see a single Indian person when the team is in Kashmir, right? So there's this devastation they are racing to prevent you know, hundreds, thousands of people are gonna die in the short term, but then also millions of people in that global area are going to be poisoned by the effects of radiation, right? So so much of the action of these films is ostensibly provoked by the need to protect this this global population, right? But they're essentially ciphers. So when the the question seems to be like, you know, who do you save? You know, the the many or the one The millions are these poor brown people, right? And so to have them weighted uh, against one of Ethan's privileged support crew, you know, just felt I I was unsettled by that, you know, because, you know, because we're supposed to, you know, believe it that ethan is a a moral actor because he is allowed because he still cares about the one over the many and i i get that and i understand the importance of that but i just didn't wish that you know on the other side of the scale were these virtually invisible brown people
0: absolutely and and um i am gonna uh say a legitimate potential spoiler now um, what the film does in the final act to really raise the stakes for Ethan is that it brings back uh, Michelle Monaghan, who first appeared as his wife in, or his fiance in uh, the third installment, and who um, is is there at working as a doctor uh, at the site of this um, this uh, outbreak, uh, precisely because the bad guys have. Brought her there to use her as, unbeknownst to her, unbeknownst to Ethan, unbeknownst to anyone, they have brought her there to use her as a kind of leverage against uh, against Ethan. So that allows us, the audience, to understand. Oh well, his beautiful white, you know, uh, ex wife who he still loves and and functions as a kind of protector of, you know, is is in danger. Well, of course he's going to do everything it takes. You know, it, it never makes it about. It never really makes it about those millions of people that actually live in that region of the world, um, and I'm also frustrated with the ways in which this film is. In my mind, it's kind of invisibly patriarchal. So you have a a, a scenario in which um, the IMF, the you know whatever they're called, the Mission Impossible team. Is working against these anarchists, right? The anarchists they are they they want to break down the, the the current world order. They want to establish a kind of, you know, anarchy. They their their creed, which is, I mean, absurd and disprovable by human history, but that they keep saying over and over again is like the greater this. If you if you create a situation to to cause a uh, world peace, right? The, well, you want that situation to be as, as catastrophic as possible. They keep saying the greater the suffering, the greater the peace, the greater the peace that follows. But so you have the Mission Impossible team working to maintain the or- that order um, within the world. And, you know, just once I would love a film in which the good guys are working to uh to disrupt the uh, the the corrupt oppressive world order and the bad guys are the ones fighting to maintain like oppressive government systems you know systems and like the status quo Be- um so uh, while the uh, while the mission impossible team in the film is working to maintain uh, the status quo. The film itself is a kind of device, a cultural device that is also working to maintain the status quo, right? Oh, of course, the good guys want to maintain uh, things the way they are. And oh, of course, of course, it's fine that this woman, the Michelle Monaghan character, um, her existence is basically now just, you know, being used as a, as a, a pawn or, you know, leverage against Ethan, because that's the natural order of things. Men protect women. And, you know, there's all these conversations he has with Rebecca Ferguson's character, who's great and who we'll, you know, talk about maybe in a minute, but where he can keep saying to her, like, things like, you have to walk away. Like, you know, you have to walk away. Um, But I mean, but we... And and that makes sense to us as viewers. The man, what, what, he, she's a very capable international super spy herself. But of course, because he's interested in her romantically, because he he has feelings for her, he wants her safe. He wants her out of the game. But you know, I mean, can you imagine a film in which uh, a team of you know prime of primarily female international super spies or, you know, at least a, an even balance where one of them fell in love with a man and she's like, you know, you have to w- walk away, right, where where she's the one who wants to protect him. You know, it it, it would be disruptive. It would feel strange. But, but a film like this, it just... Yeah, absolutely.
1: Because I think, um, you know... The the One of the key differences between Rebecca Ferguson's character and Michelle Monaghan's character is that, you know, um, Re- Rebecca Ferguson, as you say, is a supremely competent spy in her own right. And so Ethan's desire to remove her from the action is purely based upon uh-huh. exactly. uh, gender, right? And his sort of, you know, um, you know... Pr- pr- Protection. So, yeah, it's not about, like, Michelle Monaghan, at least, the, the excuse, the valid excuse is that she's a civilian, right? So, you know, the further she is away from this this dark life he has chosen for himself, the better. She can only be her by her proximity to him. But Rebecca Ferguson is fucking kick ass. And so the fact that he wants her right is, yeah, like, you are someone that I want to protect. You are someone that I am attracted to, that I've got this great chemistry with, you know? And so it's not that I don't think you can take care of yourself. It's that, you know, you are essentially a, a potential. Potential woman, like one of the things that I do appreciate these about these films is that, except for three, the the romantic subplot never takes over um, the the action sequences. And this is this is not me down in romance in any way because y'all know I love romance. But Tom Cruise as an actor, there's something so delightfully alien about him. Such that many times I do not believe him in human relationships. That sounds so wrong, but you know, I just no, I, I, I get you it. know what I'm I saying. Completely
0: get it. Yeah. Um. I mean, I want to say, um. Yeah. To your to our prior discussion, um, the the impulse to protect uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character is so rooted in gender that we. That's obvious when we think about the idea that well, ostensibly Ethan Hunt cares very deeply about you know Benji, uh, uh, played by Simon Pegg. He cares about Ving Rames, you know, but he would never say to those characters like you you need to walk away, yeah. right? He, never, because because I mean, as much as he loves them, cares about them as friends, like he doesn't feel that need to be to, to keep them from danger or harm. But of course, oh. You know, I I kind of want to bang you, uh, so le- please please get out of the
1: this <laughs> yeah, whole like game. remain remain Go. safely bangable. You know, exactly. on Go. some island in Greece where no one knows yeah. where you are except for it, me. Um, exactly. So Rebecca Ferguson's character is amazing, but I want also want to talk about. I want to get back to this idea of maintaining the status quo, definitely because yeah. make no mistake, the CIA, the Impossible Missions Force. Um, the the deep state as it exists is absolutely the hero of these films. The problem these films would suggest is rogue actors within those organizations but they absolutely want you to believe and be thankful for the existence of these government agencies right? There is never a space for us to truly question you know by the end of the movie the legitimacy and the efficacy uh, of these films. You know as I said like th- these films you know posit a world and in which these organizations create problems and then solve them. And then we're supposed Uh to be thankful for their existence. So I definitely want to come back to that. But I want to talk about another woman in the film, which is um, the character, the White Widow. And I'm blanking on her character's name, but the sort of like arms dealer, you know, mover and shaker character, who I believe, am I right here? She is supposed to be the daughter of Max, who was the arms dealer from the first movie.
0: Yes, which is a fascinating little... E- little Easter egg. It's really, it's not even like a, it's not a spoiler in my mind because it has no impact whatsoever right. on the plot. It is simply a little, a little thing for fans of the franchise for to make your ears perk up when we first meet or, her or we first see this character, the White Widow, um, uh, speaking at, at, an, at an event and she refers uh, to her mother, Max. And right. which obviously that's, like there's, there's no question that the reason that that's in the film is so that we as as Mission Impossible faithfuls will be like aha, uh, the character played by um, Vanessa
1: Redgrave yeah
0: R- Vanessa Redgrave in in Mission Impossible that was her and I just wanted you know I mean I, I love that we get that moment I think that it it um, it suggests like uh, oh well women can have. Power and influence in these spaces, but only working from like shadowy, you know, uh, realms like behind the scenes with their money and things like that, like as opposed to being sort of physical players in the game. Um, But I I really wish we'd gotten like a little moment of Hunt um, just saying like. You know, I knew I knew your mother or some little <laughs> some little payoff for that. But it doesn't it doesn't happen. I, I absolutely did.
1: Well, for one thing. OK, so the first Mission Impossible movie comes out in 96. So we're 22 years on. Right. So I was dying when we first meet the White Widow and she's given her speech and we learn that she's Max's daughter. Because I'm like, OK, what are you like? 28 years old, you know? So essentially, at, during the time of the first Mission Impossible film when <laughs> when Ethan was going up against your mom, you were like 6. Like you and your brother were playing with your Hot Wheels cars and whatever and meanwhile this other shit's going on. There mm-hmm. was I I loved it. I was I was sad by the way her character was diminished because she would have been such an amazing primary antagonist for this film. Although I think it would have made more sense um, if she were slightly older. It, it, it was hard to convince me that she had attained kind of the, the the level of influence that she had given how clearly young she was. It was kind of like um, in the show Elementary, which y'all also know I love, Natalie Dormer as Moriarty, you know, apparently has been gathering like this worldwide web of, you know, nefarious actors to her. And I'm like, dude, when did you start doing this? In the second grade? Like how fucking long have you been doing
0: I guess for me, then, that is actually one way in which the nod to Max does serve a story purpose, because I can sort of find it a little more believable if I if I think that she sort of uh, inherited to some yeah. degree her mother's connections, her mother's resources, right? Um, but that does make the fact—I hadn't thought of it in those terms before— the fact that at one point she kisses, uh, you know, Ethan, like, and thinking about how, yeah, she was like a six-year-old kid in some other room during uh, Ethan's meeting with her mother back <laughs> in the first film makes that a little weird. However, I, I mean, um, and that's so par for the course, the older man, the younger woman, you know, sexual tension. But I, I will say I, I, was a, I was a little pleased with the fact that this film doesn't, pretend that Ethan and or Tom Cruise aren't getting uh, a little older. It does have moments where he kind of fumbles, where he he screws up and um, or where he hesitates. Right. There's a there's a a pretty funny moment that's also used in trailers and things where he's he's you know, he's running. He's doing his Tom Cruise, distinctive Tom Cruise run in pursuit of somebody Um, and he has to, you know, jump out a window of a building to continue the pursuit. And Benji is just watching him as this dot on a, on like an iPad or something. And he sees, you know, him hesitate and he's like, you know, keep going. Why are you, why are you stopping? Why are you waiting? What's going on? And we see Tom Cruise yell, like, I'm jumping out a window. Yeah. And it's, it, it serves, it's both a funny moment and it serves as a kind of, you know, I mean humanizing moment, I guess, to make us feel like, oh, you know, Ethan Hunt isn't a relentless machine right. of, of, of boundless stamina and everything. Whereas, you know, I mean, other action films might just, other action films might play that as like a really badass moment where we see the the, the person, the action hero, just without hesitation uh, do what needs to be done. This film goes in the other direction and, uh, and lets us uh, kind of laugh at the situation and and at Ethan a bit that he has to kind of take a moment to psych himself up and to prepare himself for what 's about for what he's about to do
1: yeah, you know so i I have been uh very vocal about my love for the action grandpa uh, movie genre. And so I wish I didn't have the opportunity, but I wish I had had the chance to go see, um, the equalizer two this week. Oh yeah. Cause I think there's a very interesting conversation to be had about the ways in which, I mean, Denzel Washington, not significantly older than Tom Cruise, maybe like, I don't know, five years older than Tom uh-huh. Cruise. who I think is 55. Um, but I think there's a, there's a way in which some actors have leaned in to, you know, the explicit aging, uh, of their bodies, and uh, so the, they are—they are happy to move into this kind of new phase. Although it is important that they are still um, being sh- uh, presented as as action heroes, right? But you would never call the Mission Impossible films. Um, an Action Gramps movie, right? So even no. though we recognize that Tom Cruise is getting older, his body looks different. His face looks different. His concerns are different. That's something that's that's very um, deliberately, like it's very deliberately not uh, marketed in that way. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about how this film was marketed and the trailers that we saw and how they set up this expectation that Henry Cavill and his particular kind of physicality you know are going to be matched against uh Ethan Hunt and his kind of physicality so that the that sort of famous gif of like Henry Cavill like loading up the guns in that uh-huh. bathroom getting ready to punch right you think he's going to be fighting Ethan that's not what occurs in that scene and i thought it was a stroke of absolute brilliance to cast Henry Cavill and Angela Bassett as, you know, sort of these obstacles for Ethan Hunt in this film because you look at what that Shows you the kind of forces against which Ethan's model of masculinity as this, you know, white 55 year old dude are arrayed, right? Like it's a model of youth and more virile masculinity, um, that, that is mm-hmm. an obstacle. There is the, the forces of blackness and black femininity and, you know, um, the power associated with that. You know, this film is, is, uh, crucially trying to assert that Ethan's model of masculinity is not obsolete. Mm hmm. You know, and so I just thought it was so it was so brilliantly done that an actor with Henry Cavill's, you know, physical stature was cast and Angela Bassett was cast. like they were they were perfect for those particular roles. Having said that, I do not buy Henry Cavill as the author of that fucking anarchist manifesto. Like when we find out later that he's the one who wrote that, I was like, dude, really? Like, I I'm, I'm not trying to say you're stupid, but there's no way on this or any other planet that you would have been able to pull the wool over Angela goddamn Bassett's eyes for more than a second. You mean to tell me that, you know, you are the the mysterious John Lark figure that everyone's been hunting and you've been able to, please,
0: please. Yeah. There was never a moment where, where Cavill's affect, his persona suggested a, uh, a a distaste for order right Right. for so uh it did seem um i i wish that after the reveal uh of him as as john lark that we'd seen something in cavill's performance like a like a, a lowering of the the the, the, the sort of performance that he right. that he has put on up to that point to play this character of of uh, whatever his um, you know CIA alter ego is and and reveal his true self as like a, a committed uh, anarchist but he seems like the same person and that's yeah, um, yeah like, well and I,
1: I don't know that Henry Cavill God bless him with his no. you know ridiculous statements recently but um, I don't know that he has the wherewithal as an actor to do that, right? Like, I think he's perfect <laughs> as Superman, precisely yes. because you know he is a he is a figure um, that does not. There, there are only so many layers to that guy, you know. Exactly. So yes. it, it, there's just there's there's no way that I bought. Uh, for I mean, and this is apart from my irritation with the way the film throws around the term anarchist and anarchy. Like, I just thought it has come to mean basically whatever people say it means you know they they just have no sense of kind of like the the actual definitions um and scope of anarchy as a movement and i say this not as someone who subscribes to that philosophy myself but it doesn't mean just anything you know uh, if yeah. anything it was the 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 c- collapsing of the world order this movement was going for it was more like a i don't know Libertarian gas bag fantasy. Uh, if it was anything, certainly not um, anarchy. You know, in the in the kind of you know leftist understanding of the term. But yeah, just. I, I wish that Henry Cavill's character, Walker, had been positioned purely as he was, sort of, you know, like the arm and the muscle of Angela Bassett's character. But to try mm. and then make him, you know, something more like a match for Ethan intellectually just didn't really work for me. I thought that that could have been left out completely.
0: Yeah. um, We're running uh, out of time to talk about this. I do want to quickly say that... um. That purely as an action film, uh, I think that that this is. Uh, th- th- I think it's an excellent film. I think that mm-hmm. the action sequences are uh, spirited. They have a physicality and an energy and a and a coherence to them uh, visually that uh, sets them above the usual kind of uh, sort of Michael Bay esque studio fare. Um, there's a lot of practical effects in this film that are. Um, That are really just impressive and, and, you know, wild situations in the final kind of knockdown, drag out uh, fight that occurs involving um, the wreckage of helicopters. You know, some just (laughs) uh, like really imaginative, like genuinely like really imaginative stuff is done um, with regard to that. So... So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, have, um, I still have
1: so much to say, Carol. We may have I to know. make this the bonus because I sure have yeah. so many questions. And actually, it's probably better the questions to put them in the bonus because they are precisely the kind of questions that I, uh, I believe, you know, um, drive you around the bend. It's kind of mechanical questions. It's not plot holy kind of stuff. But it, there are mechanical questions that I have. I must get off my chest. Uh, I may have to lay those on you during the bonus. I,
0: yeah, absolutely. And and but uh, as much as I I share your kind of disbelief with the reveal of of Henry Cavill as Lark, uh, I do think that within the uh, and as much as I I I sort of uh, am suspicious of or critical of the core politics of this film as a film that is obviously so pro status quo, mm-hmm. um in, in so many ways. Um, I do think that as a as a spy plot filled with like double crosses and intrigue and surprises and just fun spy stuff I think it's a very tight um oh very absolutely. tight script absolutely it, it establishes you know all of things that need to be established but they don't get in the way of the momentum the pacing is excellent you know it, it's it's a really in my mind, really well crafted um, and really effective sort of summer summer blockbuster.
1: Absolutely, thumbs up. Uh, if I'm using the hundred star scale that we employ on Cinema Ball, I'm giving this one an eighty nine.
0: Wow, I hadn't I haven't thought about my score. It, mine would probably be uh, like, you know eighty four. Let's just us say eighty four. <laughs> Now it's time once again for What's Your Freak Out? Ebony, what's your freak out this week?
1: Oh, man, I do this all the time, don't I? Okay, so I have two kind of related uh, freak outs. And they are linked uh, back to part of our conversation about blind spotting uh, last week through the notion of the culture vulture. And Mm. why, like, y'all just, you got to be better. Um, Okay, so the bad. I have mentioned before, I attend a black church. Y'all, every week, I'm not exaggerating. Every week, there is a group, a, a different group, of white tourists who come to the service. Ew. To, yeah, but that's, they come for a show. So right. the idea is that they want to see some black folks hooping and hollering, catching the Holy Ghost. They want to hear uh. some gospel music, that, you know, old time gospel music. They've heard that black church services are, you know, live and, you know, we get to clap it, whatever, you know, but they're clearly there for the show. And it's clear they're there for the show because there are also people who come. Like I would be the first person to invite anyone to come, you know, be, be part of, um, the spirit that's that's in the sanctuary, right? And no matter what your faith tradition is, or if you don't have a faith tradition, i would be the first person to open my arms. But there are people who come in who are so respectful. They, they come in, they sit, whatever. Um, they take part as need be. And then there are the people that I'm talking about who... I'm telling you, this woman yesterday had her cell phone out filming the parishioners, you know, Ugh. and it was like she was in fact quite literally as if she was filming something for National Geographic. I do not appreciate uh me and my fellow black people um being objects of study for these people. Um, just please don't act an ass when you come out and you're in someone else's cultural, religious, uh, spiritual, social, whatever space. I just, I don't know what it would, I don't know what kind of mental state I would have to be in to do that to someone else. It's so nasty. These people come and- Again, the doors are open for everyone, right? We take anyone, come as you are. You can come in your pajamas. You can come wearing, you know, a paper bag dress that you made. You can come wearing clown pants, whatever. But these people, you can always spot them when they come in because inevitably they are clearly, um, on a tour stop, uh, between here and, like, after this, they're going to go to the beach or they're going to go to In-N-Out Burger or something. So they're just there in, like, you know, shorts and hoodies. Um, they come in. They leave early, disrupting stuff. You know, they're looking. They're not participating in any way. They're looking at everyone else because they're there for a show. I'm so... Good Lord. The Lord is still working on me, y'all. Anyway, y'all, please don't be culture vultures. Having said that, the good, my actual freak out this week... Uh, or the one that I want to stick with me, is Perolike, which is um, one of the verticals on BuzzFeed. It is just this group of fly, hilarious, smart, wonderful Latinx people um, from all different areas. Like I think one of the things about growing up in the U.S., parts of the U.S., is the way we flatten Latinx identity just into... um, uh, like Mexico, right? So one of the things that I love about Pero Like is the way that so many of the people that there, there are people from, you know, Mexico on the team, but there's also Guatemalans, Dominicans, Salvadorans, you know, like there's just so many. And so I'm just, I'm getting into these Pero like videos and learning so much about a culture that's not my personal culture. And I'm just so grateful for it, but I don't want to make it seem like, you know, it's Like, I'm just going to school. These videos are funny as fuck. So I'm going to link to Pedalike. Get your life. They're wonderful. That's it.
0: Awesome. Um, All right. My freak out this week is a YouTube channel, a YouTube creator who goes by uh, Goodnight Moon. Goodnight Moon creates... um, asmr videos and for anyone who doesn't know what asmr is uh a certain segment of the human population uh myself included uh and a not not insignificant uh segment either um experiences sometimes like a pleasant tingling sensation in the brain which can be sometimes like triggered in response to various stimuli like very soft-spoken language um uh, personal attention, you know, tapping sounds, things like that. So there's and, and if you look up ASMR on YouTube, you will discover a whole world yeah. of videos um that are designed to, you know, to um to trigger people's ASMR. But what's really special and interesting about Goodnight Moon is that um well, a lot of things. But but what I want to talk about today for my freak out is that she has a uh, like a subset of videos called the Babelbrook um, series. And these are a kind of um, interconnected like fantasy uh, series in which she plays different characters, the proprietors of different shops in in a little fantasy village. Um um, one of whom is a character named Maybell who runs a dragon menagerie. And so the idea in, say, one of those videos is that you come in, that you are like shopping for a dragon and she talks about all the different species of dragon eggs and and what the dragons are like. And it's very, the world building on these videos is exceptional. The production, I mean, obviously her production budget, of course, is limited, but she does a, a great deal with with very little and to to conjure an atmosphere of coziness and warmth and um and you know the fiction is um is thought through and is deep the characterizations are excellent so that the videos actually like offer something beyond just um like ASMR stimuli they are just cozy um videos that really create a warm and inviting fantasy world and so um i think that anyone who's interested in like world building and Atmosphere um, would, um, you know, do well to to check out some of her videos and some of the ways in which she, um, she leverages what she has to really create like a full-fledged kind of sense of place and world.
1: I'm so excited to check this out. You, I had seen you tweet about this earlier. Yeah. And um, I have recently, maybe the last four – three, four years, um, really gotten more into audiobooks as a way to Uh um, address like anxiety issues at night. And so I really want to check this out because it seems as if it will, you know, kind of massage my brain. In the same way that 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 decompressing um, along with an audiobook does for me. So I, I can't wait to check this out.
0: Yeah, I think you may you may find that it does. I think that they're they're definitely great for just relaxation, you know, at the end of uh, a long day. And now it's time for a freak out from one of our listeners, Karen. Woohoo! Karen, take it away.
2: Ah! Hi Anita, Ebony, and Carolyn. My freakout is Anxie magazine, the first issue of which came out in 2017 and which is published twice a year. The magazine tells the stories of folks living with mental illness without judgment and without any kind of self-help angle. It is beautifully designed, printed on high-quality paper. Uh, it's just a beautiful artifact, as well as being very, very informative. It incorporates uh, different kinds of media in it. It has uh, personal essays, art, infographics, sound bites, photo essays. Um, the content is pretty accessible, and the essays are short and powerful. Each issue revolves around a theme like anger, workaholism, and boundaries, and features the work of both well known and lesser known artists. Uh, some of the more well known artists are Ijioma Oduo, uh, Samantha Irby, Open Mike Eagle, who was a past guest on Feminist Frequency. Um, I like it because it offers perspectives and insights from people of many different cultures, races, economic backgrounds, and it doesn't treat mental illness as an anomaly, but rather as a neurological diversity. It normalizes the experience of those who have felt stigmatized for most of their lives, so it's great. So that's it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to freak out. Love you guys, and thanks for all the great work you do. Thanks
0: so much, Karen. Hey, you. Yes, you. Are you freaking out about something these days? Well, we want to hear about it. So go to feministfrequency.com slash freakout to find out how to send us your freakouts, too. That's feministfrequency.com slash F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. All right, that's our show, everyone. You can catch us back here every single Wednesday. Remember that you, too, can join our podcast community and help us bring Feminist Frequency Radio to you Every single week at d.rip/femfreak. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And you know, next time you and your friends are out saving the world uh, with 3D printed masks on, um, you know, on a, on a desperate mission, uh, you know, go ahead and just in a, mention to them this podcast as well. I think they'd really, they really like to hear about it. it. May help them focus and get the, get the job get the job done. You know, people don't realize we're doing our part to save the world too by supporting. Those uh, those super spies. Yeah. Uh, you can check out all of our work and our other podcasts at feministfrequency.com. Uh, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at Femfreak to stay up to date on all the news. You can find our fearless leader, Anita, at Anita Sarkeesian. Uh, you can find me at Carolyn Michelle. And Ebony, where can folks find you? You can find me at Angela Bassett's Wig. There you go. Uh, our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. And we'll see you next week. Bye.